We are so thankful you decided to take time out of your day to listen to this sermon. Central to all of our services is gospel-centered teaching led by our senior pastor, Dr. Jeff Warren. Together, we are a church that seeks to follow Jesus every day, and we hope you are drawn closer to Christ as a result of this message. So I had the privilege of being in South Texas the past few days uh, with some of our families. It's really cool. Uh, the work that we did, we painted, there were some VBSs, there was some uh, women's ministry that went on, uh, some construction, and fortunately I was not heavily involved in the construction, uh, because that would be an unreliable structure, uh, uh, totally, but uh, I did some painting and that was okay, I did okay with that, um, and some bed building, it was really a great, great time, about 120 families were in South Texas. And one morning, I think it was either yesterday morning or Friday morning, we were all in the hotel lobby getting ready to go out, and some of the kids had turned on some cartoons, and we were watching it, and, and I like cartoons. I'm, I'm not afraid to wave that flag in front of you. I hope you won't think less of me. I do like cartoons, but there were cartoons on, and we were like, what? What is this? Like, I don't understand what's happening here. Cartoons, I think, have moved on from 1990s Travis, who was watching cartoons at that point, and it got me thinking about Scooby-Doo, right? Scooby-Doo's great. I love Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo follows the same plot every time. So if you don't know Scooby-Doo, one, where have you been? Two, uh, Scooby-Doo follows the same plot. It's five, I guess, college-aged kids driving around in a van that they call the Mystery Mobile. Uh, I guess it's four college-aged kids and and Scooby, right? And they're driving around, and they, they go to these haunted places, and they solve mysteries that are taking place that have to do with some sort of ghost or monster or something like that. And Shaggy and Scooby are always scared, and the other three are the ones that actually figure things out. Well, at the end of every single episode, they capture the monster, the ghost, and they're like, well, let's see who the monster really was, and they pull it off, and it's always somebody like the gardener or the person that was going to inherit the property and wanted everybody to be scared off. And he uses the same line at the end of every episode, say it with me, I would have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for you darn kids, right? That's exactly what happens at the end of every episode. And I bring this up because we live our lives sort of as the reverse of Scooby-Doo. We put our nice selves on the outside. We, we put like the really nice, presentable, religious, uh, good person, uh, kind person, whatever it is, we put that on the outside. And on the inside, that's where the monster lives. That's, if you pull the mask off, you actually discover a monster. It's not the other way around. There's something inside of us that sometimes gets in our own way. It gets in the way of God's work. It sabotages us, sometimes without us realizing that it's doing it. Uh, Johnny Cash has a great song called The Beast in Me, and it's actually a prayer of God help the beast in me. So I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder just how much control that beast or that monster, that bad guy has in my life. Do you ever wonder if you're on the wrong side of God's plan? And what I mean by that is, do you ever wonder if if even though you may be a believer, but you may just be getting in the way of some things that God is doing? Do you ever wonder that? Do you ever get concerned with that? Do you ever wonder if you're a Pharisee? Because those were the bad guys in Jesus' time. Do you ever wonder about that? We're continuing on in our study of the word spoken by the word. And what we mean by that is Jesus Christ is the embodiment, the living word of God who put on flesh and dwelt among us. 
And there are times throughout his ministry in the gospel where Jesus quotes the Old Testament, the word of God. And so we're looking at passages that he quotes and seeing what light that has to shine on in our life. And today, I want us to talk about ways that we can know and identify, ways that we kind of get in the way of what God's doing. So we're going to look at three things. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12. You can go ahead and start turning there in your Bibles. And we're going to look at three things that kind of lead us to reject God's plan. And often I think this is unknowing. So I hope this is sort of revelatory for you. It'll probably be uncomfortable. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, But the first thing we're going to see is that entitlement leads to rejection. Entitlement leads to rejection. So when we get into the story in Mark chapter 12, we're actually jumping into the middle of a fairly long-running section of the gospel where Jesus is bumping up against the religious establishment. It's near the end of his ministry. In Mark chapter 11, he's had the triumphal entry, so he's ridden in on the donkey. They've sung to him. There's been the palm branches with the little kiddos. And, And he goes into Jerusalem in Mark's gospel. He looks around, and then he leaves. And that's kind of the end of the first day. The second day he goes in, and on the way in, he tries to eat some figs from a fig tree, and there's no figs. He curses the fig tree, and he moves on. Goes into the temple area, clears out the money changers, and then on the way back out, the fig tree is dead. And the disciples point it out, and, and he kind of teaches them something about it. Uh, basically, it's an, allu- an allusion to the corrupt nature, the dead nature of the religious establishment in Jerusalem. So then he, when he goes back to the temple courts the next day, the religious leaders ask him, who gave you the authority to do all this stuff and to say all this stuff? And Jesus says, well, I'm going to an- answer your question with a question of my own. John the Baptist, where did he get his authority from? Was it from heaven or from man? And they don't want to answer Because if they say it's from heaven, that totally validates Jesus' ministry. Because John the Baptist said, this is the guy, this is the Messiah. But if they say it's from man, the people really like JTB, and so they don't want to step on anybody's toes. So they say, we don't know. And Jesus says, well, I'm going to tell you then where I get my power. The cool thing about Jesus, though, is he still tells them. He says, I'm not going to tell you directly He then gives them this parable in Mark chapter 12 that we're going to look at today. Now, usually when I teach a parable, I don't like to break up the parable because that's the way that Jesus taught and and it's supposed to have impact. For this one, though, we're going to break it up a little bit because I want to see some subtle things that take place in the story. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 12. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and he dug a pit for the winepress, and he built a tower, and he leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. So the parable starts with Jesus actually providing some backstories, some scenarios. There's quite a developed scene that takes place, especially for a parable, and he's describing what this owner does. Somebody builds a vineyard, this man builds a vineyard, and it's got uh, a wine press in it uh, for them to make Welch's grape juice, of course. And they've got a wine press. They've got, they've got good crops. He defends it. He puts a wall around it. He's got a guard tower on it. He's got everything that it needs to be functional. And then he gives it to the tenants, and he says, just run with it, and I'll be back later to collect my share of the produce. Now, in the parable, God is obviously the owner of this. That's typically how these stories go. God is the owner, but the vineyard is Israel. The vineyard is Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, there's numerous times in Isaiah and Jeremiah where Israel's referenced as a vineyard, and usually when it's referenced as a vineyard, it's an an unfruitful, it's an unproductive vineyard. 
But in this case, it's, it's supposed to be productive. It's supposed to be fruitful. And the tenets are the religious leaders, the, the priests, the religious establishment, the Pharisees at this point. And by the time we get to Jesus' day, the religious establishment has kind of forgotten their purpose. They were supposed to help and encourage people to follow God through the commandments, through, through keeping the law, through the sacrifices. That's what they were supposed to be doing and turning them away from idolatry. But by the time we get to Jesus' day, the, the religious establishments fractured and splintered into certain groups that are all kind of in tune with their own agenda and not with what God wants them to do. So the Pharisees are all about keeping the law, and not just the law, but their interpretation of the law. The Sadducees want to be connected to the temple, and they want to control the temple, and so they do. They're very politically connected. The Herodians want, to, want Herod and, and Herod's descendants to be on the throne, and so that's how they're connected. And all of this stuff is going on in the backdrop, but they've forgotten their purpose of leading people in worship and in sacrifice. They've become entitled. They think that it's all about them, just like the tenants, as we'll read in a little bit, begin to think that it's all about them. Even though God, even though the owner of the vineyard has done all this work, they think this is about me. This is about me. And this is what entitlement does to us. It makes us forget. It makes us forget We forget that we have what we have because it's a blessing from God. And then we forget what we're supposed to do with the blessing that we have. Supposed to use it to bless other people. We forget that our purpose is to bear the image of God. Not our own image, not to make ourselves central, but to bear the image of God and to share Christ with a world that desperately needs Him. But we forget that. We forget the parts of Scripture that we don't like, or the parts that make us feel uncomfortable, or the parts that we don't understand. We forget those. We don't bother with those. And we just find the parts of Scripture that sound good, that make us feel good, something that we can put up in our house somewhere that's a nice little verse. We forget those things. But you know what entitlement also does? Entitlement shows us a way, or forgetting really shows us a way, to fight entitlement in our life. We remember We start to remember. We have to call ourselves to remember. Throughout Scripture, when God wants His people to respond to Him, to do something, He says, remember, remember, remember. And when God does something on behalf of Israel, on behalf of His people, it's usually because He remembers and then He acts. The way that we fight forgetfulness that's sourced in entitlement is we remember. We remember the whole counsel of Scripture. This is why I need to be in the Word every day. It's why I need to be in prayer every day. It's because I'm forgetful. I forget. Even when I was preparing this sermon this week, there were things, as I worked through it, I thought, man, I need to add that in. I need to remember that. And there were things that I read in books, and I was like, why didn't I pick up on that? It's because I was forgetting how important and how central Jesus is to our lives. I was forgetting. I need to be in the Word every day. And so as you move through the parable, though, it's not just forgetting that entitlement causes. It causes some other things as well. Let's keep reading in verse 2. When the season came, that's the harvest season, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat 
and some they killed. So in this parable, a fairly common practice takes place. The owner of the vineyard goes away, and when he, co- uh, he sends servants back to collect either his portion of the harvest or all of the harvest, depending on what he had agreed to the tenants. Now, in our parable, something goes wrong. The tenants begin to become entitled, and they think that, well, we worked hard for this. We should keep it. And even though it's wrong, we can kind of sympathize with that a little bit, right? Like, yeah, the owner just kind of went away. The CEO of the company is nowhere around. He's just collecting a check, not doing anything. He's off somewhere else on some island or private jet somewhere else. He's not doing anything. The, the workers deserve the produce. And so they start rebelling. They start uh, resisting. They start thinking that it's about them. And this is what happens again with the religious leaders in, in, throughout Israel's history and particularly in Jesus' day. God sends to Israel, to the vineyard, servants to call his people back. They're called the prophets. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, the Italian prophet, Malachi, it's Malachi. They all go to Israel and say, turn, turn, you're, you're, you're getting off course. God wants you to bear fruit. God wants you to, to produce. You're not producing. And the religious establishment and the political establishment in Jesus' in, in Jesus's day and in the kingdom of Israel does to them what the tenants do to the servants from the owner. Some they beat, some they treat shamefully, some they kill. I mean, look what happens to Elijah. Elijah's run out of town. Some people think Isaiah was sawed in half. John the Baptist was beheaded. Jesus was crucified. This is what the religious establishment did to people that called them out on their self-centeredness and on their entitlement. Because they think that they're entitled to perks. They think that they're entitled to benefits, to the credit to the glory that really belongs to God alone. And entitlement does this to us as well. We get used to a certain way of living, a certain level of comfort, of status. And we think, we begin to think, I'm entitled to this. This is, this is how I should live, and this is, this is the way anybody should live. And those that live not like me or are less than I am become entitled. We think things the way things always have been should be the way that things always are done because we think we're entitled to that. Or on the flip side of it, we think that there should be a new thing every other week because we're entitled to being entertained. We become entitled, and we think it's all about us. We're just like Adam and Eve. They get entitled in the garden, and they think, you know what? Why should I bear God's image when I can bear my own? And they take and they eat. We like to go after God's glory. We look at the work we've done. We look at our careers. We look at our families. We look at our degrees. We look at our status. And we start to think, you know what? I did all this on my own. I don't need you, God, for anything. And this attitude also infiltrates our relationships. We begin to think, I don't need anybody else either. Everybody works for me, and if you don't work for me, get out of the way. We treat our families and our friends that way. We become entitled. And the way you combat this, this manifestation of entitlement, this arrogance that comes, is through generosity. It's why we're, we're doing the, this give up to give. I know we've mentioned it a few times this morning, but I, I, I want you to see the importance of it, it's not just, oh, let's write a check and then, and then we'll just take care of it. It's not that practice. We're giving up something, we're sacrificing something, and that's an important part of it, 
sacrificing something so that we can be dependent, so that we can show, yes, maybe I am capable of writing a check and taking care of a portion of this $250,000 that we need. But what if God's calling you just to give up something that you rely on in your comfort and in your convenience so that he can show you that he's all that you need and that you're not the center and that you're not the most important thing? God's calling us to do something different, to fast, to give up to give. This is why Jesus tells the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. It's not because he tells that to everybody that follows him. He doesn't do that with everybody. But the rich young ruler was entitled. And it was a barrier for him following Jesus. It's why he tells us to give to those who ask of us. He tells us to to love our enemies We are generous because we represent God. We are His image bearers. And God is a generous God. And when we withhold generosity, we're telling people that our God is not generous. And that's not something we can afford to do. And so the parable goes on, and the entitlement escalates. It keeps going. So let's see what happens in verse 6. He, the owner, had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. So the owner, you might be thinking, wow, what terrible parenting is this? Like you would send your your kid into this situation. The owner's actually making a legal claim. He's saying in that day and age, the heir to the vineyard would have had the same legal rights as the owner of the vineyard. So it's the same as him coming himself. And he's sending his son there to make a legal claim. The tenants aren't respecting, so maybe they'll respect the law and they'll recognize, oh, okay, we do need to give the produce. But the tenants do just the opposite. They decide, you know what, we can get the whole thing. We don't just want the fruit, we want the whole thing. It can be ours. And so they kick the son out, they essentially kick the owner out, and they take it for themselves. And this is what the religious leaders had done in the temple establishment. They had kicked out the worship of God, and they had made it about themselves. They had made the temple kind of this political bargaining piece. Rather than worshiping at the temple, they worshiped the temple, and they worshiped their power and their control. Humanity has a very long history of kicking God out of things that he owns. Adam and Eve tried to do it in in the Garden of Eden. Israel tries to do it numerous times in their history And if we're honest, we have a tendency to do it as well. We tend to kick God out of things that we feel like we can control, that we can understand, that we can maintain, and we we invite him back into things when things get out of control and we need him. When there's something we can't handle, we're like, oh, oh, Jesus, I need you now. Rather than practicing the, the discipline of dependence, our entitlement makes us think that we can handle some things on our own, and we don't only need Jesus for emergencies. What we do in this is we still uphold this pretense of worship, of righteousness, but inside that Scooby-Doo monster is still there, right? Inside, we're still trying to, we're still winding up being opposed to God's plan, really, is what happens. Sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it, and that's what entitlement does. It's really subtle. You don't realize that you're entitled until somebody points it out, or the Holy Spirit points it out. 
And the way you combat this is you continually and regularly offer up to God your stuff, your family, your friends, your job, your dreams, your hopes. You keep offering those to God and you say, God, I, I'm human. I am bent on entitlement. I, I know that there's things that I think I deserve in my life. And I offer them to you every day as much as you can. And when you fail to do this, and we all fail, I'm just as entitled as anybody else. I know this. When you fail, you come to me and you say, Lord, I'm sorry. I confess that I keep falling into this trap. Forgive me. You know what God does in those moments? He forgives. He forgives. We have to examine ourselves daily, which is hard. Self-examination every day. Where am I, where am I falling short? Where am I focused on myself? Because if you're not examining yourself, you fall into another pathway to rejection of God. We fall into blindness. Blindness leads to rejection. Now, we're about to read potentially a twist in the parable. Potentially, this is a twist in the parable because depending on how you hear the parable, the tenants could actually be the good guys. It's strange to think because we're used to reading parables in a certain way, but it could be. What if I told you that the owner was the Roman Empire? of the vineyard. The vineyard's still Israel, the tenants are still the religious establishment, but the owner is now the Roman Empire. And the servants that are sent, let's say that's the Roman army. They're coming in to control, to take what the nation of Israel has produced, and they don't deserve it. And then the son who comes is, let's say it's a governor, we'll throw a name on it, it's Pontius Pilate. We'll just say it's Pilate. And so when they rebel, when they kill the son, when they kill the governor, they get Israel back for themselves, and the religious establishment are a bunch of heroes. Woo! Go Pharisees. Until you get to verse 9, and then it makes it very clear who the bad guys are. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Ooh. Jesus is not mincing words here. He's saying that the tenants are the ones who are wrong. And they're getting exactly what they deserve from the owner of the vineyard. What's more is he says that they give it to other people. God gives it to others. Now, who are the others? The Gentiles. What? But those are the bad guys. Those are the villains. That's the Scooby-Doo bad guy, the Gentiles. They're not supposed to get that stuff. And to drive his point home, Jesus quotes Psalm 118. Verses 22 and 23, and it's there for you in, in, in chapter uh, 12. Have you not read this scripture, which uh, Jeff pointed out uh, this week when we were, sounds kind of snarky, and I kind of like that. I kind of like that interpretation. Have you guys not read, like, what are you guys doing? Which the answer is, of course they've read. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Now, Psalm 118, if you go back and read it, we don't have time today to read it, is all about God's covenantal love for his people. Now, when you go and read Psalm 118, it's easy to think that it's one person singing and God has rescued this individual. But read it carefully, and it actually sounds better, and it actually sounds correct, that it's one person as a spokesperson on behalf of the people of Israel singing about God's deliverance. So it's kind of like when somebody sings God Bless America in a stadium. We're all wanting God to bless America on behalf of us as a group, but there's just one person singing, right? 
but we're all there with them. That's kind of what's happening in Psalm 118. And so Psalm 118 runs through this story, and it's a, it's a post-exile psalm. So Israel's been exiled out of the promised land. They've come back. They've basically been destroyed, been defeated, but now God has brought them back, and that's what the psalm recounts. We were, we were destroyed by the nations. We were overlooked by the nations, and now God is bringing us back, back from the dead. That's actually the language that's used. We're back from the dead, and then the psalm concludes with them climbing the temple steps, offering a sacrifice, and worshiping God. And right smack dab in the middle of the psalm comes this these two verses. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now, this idea of the stone being rejected is a pretty popular uh, expression. This isn't just found in Psalm 118. It's found in a couple other places. And it's a reference to uh, a story that was told amongst the Jews about Solomon's temple being built. So as they're building the temple, they come upon this stone, and they're like, this stone isn't going to work. It doesn't fit. It's, it's, in, it's um, imperfect. It doesn't work for the temple, and they threw it out. And then they're assembling the porch of the temple, and they realize they need a certain stone that's cut a certain way at the head of the porch. And they discover one of the stones that they had rejected, the one that they tossed out, actually fits perfectly. And so this becomes sort of a symbol of Israel. They are a stone that the builders, and the builders being the nations, so like Babylon, Assyria, Persia, Greece, Rome, all these nations that that have just overlooked Israel and saw it as this political pawn and this place to drive through and have battles in, but this insignificant nation is actually something that God has chosen to bless the entire world. And the nations miss it. They don't get it, but we get it and God gets it, and that's what matters, and this is marvelous in our eyes. And the reason why Jesus quotes it to the religious leaders is he's telling them, maybe not so subtly, this is happening again. There is a stone, me, Jesus, that the builders are rejecting, you, and you're missing it. You're missing that I'm the cornerstone. You're missing that I'm central. You're missing that I am the focus of all of God's plans and provisions for Israel and for the entire world. You're missing it, and it's happening again. And they're blind to it. They're completely blind to it. Despite how much they know about Scripture, they're missing it. Their blindness is causing them to reject God's plan for the Messiah. Leads them to reject Jesus, the cornerstone. What does that mean for him to be the cornerstone? All of history up to this point is leading to God putting on flesh, living amongst men, living a perfect sinless life, and going to the cross and dying on behalf of the sins of the world. And then it's leading to his resurrection. And then from that point on, history is about God's kingdom advancing, God's kingdom being brought in, culminating in the return of Christ and the restoration of all things. And those who believe in Christ, who say, I'm not trying to earn God's provision, or I'm not trying to earn God's uh, favor on my own accord. I want Jesus to stand in for me. Those that have done that get to rule and reign with him eternally. We're the others who receive the vineyard. Those that don't are tossed out of the vineyard eternally. And the vineyard becomes God's improved world, the new heaven and the new earth. And Jesus is the cornerstone of this. He's the crux of history. Should be no secret that we transition from B.C. to A.D. I know that was intentional. But it's kind of fitting when you think about it. And Mark highlights the blindness by quoting verse 
23. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. He's the only gospel writer to add the second verse. It's marvelous in our what? Eyes. It's marvelous in our eyes. The idea that the Son of God would put on flesh, dwell amongst men, and die a brutal death on behalf of humanity. And for those that believe, so us in the 21st century, the fact that we're counting on a peasant who lived 2,000 years ago, who definitely died, the fact that we're counting on him to make us right with God sounds absolutely ridiculous. Unless your eyes have been opened, unless you're no longer blind, and then it is marvelous in our eyes. The Pharisees don't see it. Some of us don't see it. We act like we see it. It's like when you used to play those, uh, you know, those books that you kind of stare at for a while and it shows a picture, but it's just a bunch of squiggly lines. I know for a fact that some of you in this room have said, oh yeah, I totally see it. It's an airplane and you don't see it. You don't, you don't know what's there. It's just a bunch of squiggly lines. I get that. Some of us are sitting here and be like, oh yeah, I totally get it. Jesus. Woo. Jesus. I like him. But you've never depended on him for salvation. You've never trusted in him. You're never you're not relying on him. You're relying on like him to get you a jump start. And then I'm going to earn this the rest of the way. You cannot earn this. Your good works apart from Christ do not please God at all. They're offensive to him. Jesus Christ is the way that we have a right relationship with God. And we're often blind to it. I mean, I fall into the trap all the time. Trying to make God like happy and love me and, and by what I do. And I have to come back regularly and be like, no, the Father loves me not based on anything that I have done, but because of what Christ has done. And if I'm ever counting on anything else, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. So blindness leads to rejection of God's plan because we stop seeing God's plan. That's what happens. We stop seeing God's plan. You ever take an eye test? Hopefully, all of you have. If not, don't drive today. Just find someone else, take an Uber, and go take an eye test. In an eye test, I don't care who you are. I don't care how blurry that bottom line is. That's the one you try to read. We're that. And it's like, I don't care. I saw an A, sort of. That's either an X or a Q. I'm going to guess. I got a 50-50 shot. And we fill in the blanks. And that's what we do with God's plan. We're like, okay, I know Jesus has got to be a part of it somewhere, and I think Jesus gets me to heaven, but everything else I'm just filling in the blanks. I'm guessing. Because we're blind to God's plan. If we're honest, we don't really want to know what God's plan is, because it might be different than what God is doing, right? Jesus talks about this. You know how we, we, we get cured of this problem? Jesus talks about it in John chapter uh, 9. He heals a man of born blind, and the Pharisees are, are like, okay, why are, why are you doing this? You're healing on the Sabbath. And the, the man actually wants them to follow Jesus. They're really taken aback by that. And Jesus says, I'm here to heal the blind. And he's talking about the spiritual blind and the physical, physically blind. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, have the audacity to say, are we blind too? And Jesus' response is, if you say you're not blind, guess what? You're blind. The way we fix this is we go to God in Christ and we say, Lord Jesus, I don't know everything. I don't have you figured out. You are infinite and your ways are mysterious to me and I don't understand. Help me to not be blind. And if I'm going to continue to be blind, 
Help me to trust you in areas that I can't see. You will never get a pair of glasses to correct your lenses or to correct your eyes if you never go see the doctor. We've got to go to the doctor. We've got to go to the optometrist. We've got to confess. So entitlement, blindness, these things lead to rejection. But there's one other, and this is the worst one. Okay, this is the one that I don't know that there's a lot of hope for us here uh, unless God does something amazing. It's called stubbornness. Stubbornness leads to rejection. So the passage closes with the religious leaders failing to see their entitlement. Look at this, verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, that's the Pharisees, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Duh. So they left him, and they went away. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders, see just enough to know that Jesus is talking about them, that they're the bad guys. And then what do they decide to go and do? Exactly what the tenants in the story do to the son, who obviously represents Jesus. They do the exact same thing. They go away, they conspire. Let's kill him and throw him out of the vineyard, which is exactly what they do by the end of the week. They kill him, or they beat him, they kill him, and they throw him and bury him outside the city. It's exactly what they do. They're stubborn. They want to remain blind. They want to remain entitled. That's what stubbornness does. It solidifies you in this, in this uh, uh, framework of being against God's plan because it's not your plan. If you look at all the bad guys, all the Scooby-Doo villains in Scripture, they're all hard-hearted. Pharaoh, God hardens his heart. He hardens his heart. The Israelites, they have hard hearts throughout their journey in the wilderness. Saul, the first king of Israel, gets a hard heart when God decides to replace him. Hard-heartedness is the enemy, the enemy number one of God's plan, stubbornness. I can tell you what, this is what actually makes us the bad guys. Entitlement God can work with. God works with entitled people all the time. Have you heard the story of Zacchaeus? God works with him. Paul was incredibly entitled. God works with him and rescues him. He's also really stubborn. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Blind people. Jesus says, I'm here to help people not be blind. I'm here to work with them. Stubbornness. I think that's the thing that calcifies us in our entitlement and our blindness, and there is little short of a miracle that can rescue us from that because we're so convinced. Now, some of you might be sitting here today, and I, th I think there's really two responses that somebody might have to this message today, besides, hopefully, some sort of brokenness and conviction. It's, man, what does this have to do with me, Travis? Like, I was, I'm having a rough week. I was really hoping to come in today and get encouraged and told that, like, you're going to help me with my job or help me with my marriage or help me with my relationships. And so what does this have to do with me? This has everything to do with you. Because in our stubbornness, we stay entitled. We have to start recognizing as a people that it's not about me. I'm not the cornerstone of God's plan. You're not the stone the builders rejected. It's Jesus. We're other stones. It's not about us. We have to start going through our lives, examining ourselves prayerfully, biblically, humbly, and start rooting out the entitlement that we find in our lives. You know why marriages fail? Because people get entitled and they stay entitled. Somebody either thinks, I can go have this affair because I can have this person and this person, 
or somebody thinks, my spouse is here to serve me and help me get what I want, that's why marriages fail. Somebody gets entitled and they stay there. We struggle at work because we think our job is about getting us a paycheck, getting us insurance, getting us what we need, instead of us being there to make our job a place of flourishing, of life. We're entitled and we stay there. Single adults, I'm going to say this in love. This might be hard to hear. Some of us think we're entitled to a spouse, that it's part of this package that you get when you're born. Like you'll get a a nice house and a spouse, and, and that's not necessarily what God has for you. And it's okay to want that. It's okay to desire that. It's okay to pray for it. It's okay to even to hurt over it. But we can't let it get in the way of what God is doing in our lives. We cannot let entitlement get in the way of what God is doing. We stubbornly think that whatever vineyard we've been given, whether it's work, family, school, friends, whatever it is, we think that vineyard is about me and that I'm entitled to the fruit. And if we don't confess and repent of that, guess what? We're hard-hearted. We're stubborn. The other typical response is, man, I hope somebody else hears this. Like, man, I hope my wife hears it. You're like elbowing somebody next to you. Or you're mentally elbowing somebody because you're going to like download this on, on the internet and give it to somebody and be like, heard this, think you need to hear it too. There's this thing uh, like intentional deafness. And that's sometimes what blindness looks like. It's like this intentional deafness where we think to ourselves, oh man, like, like, this isn't for me. I don't hear this, but man, somebody else really needs to hear it, right? You do this a lot maybe at home when somebody calls your name and wants you to come do something. You're like, I'm sorry, I, was, I didn't hear you. I was, I was watching the TV. Or nowadays we do it with text right? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't see that text. Oh my gosh. Or I didn't see my voicemail when really we did. We, we did see it. Spiritually, Jesus talks a lot about refusing to listen. It's really cool. In Mark chapter four, he tells the parable of the four soils and the disciples come to him and they say, Jesus, why do you always teach in parables? Why don't you just say what you mean? And he says, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm speaking in parables because I want people to hear and not understand because if they understand, they might repent. And you read that and you're like, wait a second, I thought Jesus wanted everybody to repent. It's a really uncomfortable moment. And then you know what he does? He then proceeds to explain the parable to the disciples. And you know why he explains the parable to the disciples and not to anybody else? It's really mystifying. They asked. If you don't know what God is doing in your life, you ask. Rather than being blind, rather than just going on and what you think God has for you, you ask, you seek, you pray, and you keep asking and while you're asking and waiting on a response, you trust. Every time we hear the word of God, we ask, God, what are you saying to me? What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to tell? Otherwise, we're stubborn. We don't think it has anything to do with us. Look, I, I don't know where you are today. Maybe, maybe you tick all these boxes. Maybe you're entitled, blind, and stubborn. And, and guess what? There is hope for you. Because our God can conquer those things through Christ on the cross. He died to heal us of those things. I check all those boxes. There are areas in my life where I'm entitled, I'm blind, and I'm super stubborn. You can ask my wife. You know what? Jesus has chosen to work through us. He's the cornerstone. And so we come back to him again and again. The cornerstone is supposed to set everything right. Everybody's supposed to align. All the other stones are supposed to align to the cornerstone. So let's align our life to Jesus Christ, who had every right to be entitled. 
He's the son of God. He had every right to not acknowledge us, to be blind to our need. And he had every right to be stubborn and be like, y'all ate the fruit, it's on you. But he does none of those things. He puts on flesh, he dwells amongst men, and he does it because he loves us. So let us respond in worship. If you don't know Christ, don't be stubborn. Please don't be stubborn. Don't walk out of here thinking, oh, well, I'll figure it out next week. No. Figure it out this week. Meet me in the next steps room. I'll walk with you. We'll figure it out. Don't stay in your entitlement. Don't stay in your blindness. Not one more week. Not one more day. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we confess to you as a people that we are often very entitled and very blind and very stubborn, but you are a God who loves us, who is patient with us, and who wants to open our eyes heal our hearts, soften our hearts today, and make us reliant upon you. And so God, I pray that today you would do that for not just one or two people, but for many people today. That whether it's quietly in their own hearts or publicly with with meeting with some ministers in the next steps room, I pray that we would not stay where we are, but that you would move us to a life dependent on you, full of generosity, full of listening, full of remembering. So God, we love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. Come and join us as we seek to follow Jesus every day. We meet every Sunday at 9.15 a.m. for our small group Bible studies called Connect Groups and 10.45 a.m. for worship. We hope to see you soon at Park City's Baptist Church.